You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here in our final week discussing all the way to the end, all spoilers included, of Robert Thorogood's Death Comes to Marlow (laughs) out earlier this year. Chapter 41 is our final chapter, Herds, and I Uh am a... Uh, I'm a, I'm a little perplexed. What do you I've, mean? I've, I've got to confess. But everything was wrapped up in such a, a tight, neat little bow by the end. All the characters had their resolutions. Susie gets to go on TV. Mm-hmm. The mystery makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. And there were no elements that were over or underplayed in the in the solving of said mystery. I don't. I completely know. agree. I, do you? No, it's, okay. it's the, the confusion <laughs> more comes in that. You know, I've I've been studying law for the past ten minutes. Uh huh. Uh huh. Good. So you're an expert. I I cannot figure out what in a courtroom the purpose of a gavel is. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? What is the purpose of a gavel? It is a symbol of power and authority. Right. It's made of bronze, apparently. It's just conductive. Yeah, it's conductive. Like magnesium. Yeah, just like magnesium. Anyway, we'll come back to that in the mystery <laughs> section. I wanted to talk a little bit about. The wonderful, wonderful journey that we went on to get to the end of this story. I I, I guess the the biggest hit I want to start at the end is the the final scene that we get with uh, D.I. Hoskins. Mm -hmm. Because the way that they unravel that man in this story is excellent. There is an argument that happens between Tanaka and Hoskins, which is a real argument that takes place where uh, she is being chastised for going under his nose and following improper procedure and all of this stuff only for it then to turn out that uh tanika was right yep of course and she comes up to him and basically is like oh well it's a good thing that we had that pre-arranged argument sir so that i could be in the right place to catch the killer mm. of all of the threads in this book that we'll, we'll get into in a bit that kind of didn't quite come all the way back around this one stuck the landing real hard for yeah. me. I, I will say I, I agree with you that like the character arc of Tanika, like learning to be kind of like underhanded, like she adopts the old lady s- skills that she needs to survive in a in a man run police department, which is great. Mm-hmm. And the way that they just absolutely throw that man in the bin, uh, the Hoskins in the bin is, is fantastic. Although I will say I, I was a little disappointed that we didn't, because it's kind of hinted that he's come back to the force specifically for this case. Yes. But that is never brought up again, I don't think. No. Um, which is probably a thread for a later book. Yes. that That's all like classic detective-y sort of stuff. And it's good that we can show that all the characters in the story, despite having their fallings out and their their problems, they come together to like to do this complex plan, right? Yeah, it, it really nicely wraps up the bonds between the women in this story. I think one of the reasons that I'm like unsurprised and and still sort of satisfied, even though we didn't get the conclusion of why Hoskins came back to the force in mm. as juicy of a way as we wanted, is that the story is very much women led. Yes. Like for sure. His decision to come back is very just spare of the moment and he's sort of allowed to do that because he's a man in the story and the women in the story basically stand up and do the same thing in return. I, I do also like, as I kind of mentioned, that uh, Susie and Bex also kind of, they move their stories forward. They don't necessarily yes. resolve all their problems, but like Bex goes to her husband and has a conversation about how much money she's making and he's really supportive of her, which is good because then all of her like fears that she had, we can sweep that under the rug. We can stop seeing 
that financial advisor or whatever. I feel like I feel like sweep sweep under the rug is perhaps the 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 <laughs> exact opposite <laughs> to you know what, what I mean? you mean there. Well, you, you, look, I don't mean sweep under the rug. I mean deal with in a calm and adult manner <laughs> and put them to bed. Maybe that's maybe that's <laughs> yeah, the term. Yeah. Uh, and then Susie, uh, she ends up going on TV. Yes, which is fantastic because Judith has always been saying like, man. That's Susie and her ego. If she gets any bigger, I'm going to have to have to put her down a peg. And now Susie's going to not just have her voice on the air, but her face on TV and she's doing what she wants to do, which is great. It is a bit of a curious wrap up, though, because like there was all of this discussion about like going corporate or whatnot. Yes. Well, this is this is the thing, isn't it? Because she has such a personal connection with her listeners, right? It's true. And Robert Thurgood being a television writer by trade- before coming to novels, yep. uh, undoubtedly has a plot or two to throw around a television station that oh, would absolutely. be fodder for future books. It is kind of interesting that Judith doesn't really further her plot line. No, we, we kind of get a mention that she might go and investigate what happened to her husband further, which kind of feels like yeah. the opposite of progress. In the way that, like, I've read it, I feel like... Yeah, I mean, it feels like she's still stuck. You know, she, need, she needs to separate herself from it, right? But she's kind of pushing closer. There are a couple of other plot threads that I felt would lean in uh-huh. to resolving other plot threads. Like, for example, sure. the puzzle setter, mm. the kind of connections with Lady Bailey as well. Well, yeah, Lady Bailey functionally in the mystery is there to set up the glare of of the magnesium tape right like the witness who sees the murder happening and provides the clue that ties everything together well yeah because like she is a character who is still kind of hanging on to the side of a past relationship which is the same thing that judith is seen to be doing Mm. and we also have the flip side of that is the puzzle setter who is uh, still in a relationship that we'll talk about in a little bit, mm-hmm. but kind of finding new ways to enjoy life. And neither of those plot threads really link back directly to Judith, even though mm. externally they seem to speak very much to her position. I feel like we're supposed to see that she's thinking about these things, even if she doesn't explicitly talk about them. Yeah. And that in a in a future book, I'm sure we'll like sit down with Bex and Susie and they'll be like, well, Judith, you've helped us solve our problems and now it's our turn to help you. And so a lot of these things are more left for us as the audience to observe and connect rather than the story making that connection. Mm. But I think I would have preferred if that connection had at least been drawn a bit more explicitly because it means a couple of threads feel a bit loose even though they are still implicitly connected. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that because the, the whole like point of the, the, the cross setting scene is it does talk about the idea of, you know, relationships, but it's really more about giving, giving the trick away. <laughs> it's, it's more about the gavel. Well, like it's symbolic of the connection between the two characters Yes. in the same way that Judith is the connection between Susie and Bex because she keeps dragging them into all these murder mysteries together the, the husband of Peter is the connection between Jenny and Tris in terms of their, like, trying to get the money. And what was the other one I was going to say? Oh, the crosswords. The, the crosswords and those meetings are the connection between this husband and wife who 
can't get it on without some crosswords in their life for some reason. That that's what they that's what they need. I mean, it, it was it was a very weird scene showing up to the meeting between the crosswords setter and his wife. <laughs> yes, I, I understand that the the situation is sort of intentionally uncomfortable. Like it is a sure. bit weird to just nose in on someone else's what else spy private meeting, meeting yeah. and be like, "Hi, uh, tell me about your spycraft." Yeah. But ugh, it was just. It's just a little, I felt a little flustered reading it. Well, it, it does tie into that theme that, uh, uh, granted, a lot of very intelligent murder mysteries tap into, which is if you find out the truth, do you really want to yes. tell the truth? Like, are there times when the truth should be kept secret? And again, it is, as you say, it's kind of a shame that this puzzle doesn't tie into the core mystery more. But like, this is a truth that these two characters have with each other, they share this private thing. And it is noteworthy that Judith decides to like walk, like she doesn't just observe and try and figure it out, right? There is a point where her detectiving stops and her nosiness kind of gets the better of her and she has to insert herself into the story, which I think is a really interesting kind of character moment. Well, yeah, and it also sort of ties back to her endless curiosity with her own personal story and why she can't, like, separate herself from her past. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it, it does, as as I was saying, still link in together, but it definitely would have been nice to have, I don't know, maybe a scene between Susie and Bex, where, as you say, they do kind of, like, talk about- Talk about the whole thing. And I think that this, the thing that we're highlighting here is that Judith's is a little, a little more stagnant, a little more descriptive, yes. whereas Susie and Bex are both chugging along just fine. They are moving along. They are getting new opportunities, discovering cryptocurrency <laughs> and, and living their best lives. Yeah. Right? And that also does come back to like just the way that language is used in this book compared to a lot of other classic detectives. We were talking about the Miss Marple thing with the like way that there are other cues in a scene to tell when Miss Marple has noticed something, whereas Judith just ch- tells us she's noticed. Yeah. She just tells us what's going on. And then she sits down for, I think, 10 pages to explain the crime to the person who did the crime. Yes. Which is a bold move. <laughs> Maybe we'll get into I that. Mean, it, ha- it has to be done because it's a murder mystery novel, but I, Ooh, I do see it, your point. Her. Does it need to be done in this exact way in this part of the country localized entirely within the study? Does it? I think we can interrogate that in the mystery section, Herds, which is uh, coming up at the, the end of today's show. Let's do it. Honestly, I'm I'm excited. Uh, stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3. This is your murder mystery world tour, and we are discussing Robert Thorogood's Death Comes to Marlow all the way to the end. Spoilers are in the house. We'll be back with more. Stay tuned. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex here. We are joined once again by 2SER's Irene Diakonastasis. This time, she's in conversation with crime writer Ray Cairns, talking about her latest novel, Dying to Know, which follows up her Ned Kelly shortlisted and Davit longlisted The Good Mother, follows the story of a couple of siblings, one who disappeared in terrifying circumstances and the other who keeps the search for her alive. I'll throw you over to Irene for this conversation now, you're on Death of the Reader. Stick around. Ray, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. For crime lovers looking for a new original thriller, how would you describe Dying to Know? Uh, okay, Dying to Know, it's a standalone and it's set in Sydney. Um, it opens with budding journalist Geneva Layton receiving a phone call that changes the entire course of her life. Her terrified sister is on the line 
trapped in the boot of a moving car. She has no idea who her abductor is and she's begging Geneva for help. And then the line drops out. Police search for Amber. Geneva's days are filled with caring for her very young niece and nephew. And the days turn into months, which turn into years. When shocking new evidence finally emerges, Jen becomes desperate for answers. But to find them, she's got to take on the political power of her brother-in-law's family, the, the muscle of a formidable motorcycle gang, and the questionable support of a policeman who betrayed her in the very first month. The investigation, the closer Geneva gets to the truth, the more danger she's in. What was your motivation or inspiration to write this particular story? I listened to a young woman uh, talk about the impact of her brother going missing on both her and her family and, and how I was struck by how it like completely upended every aspect of her life. And I got to thinking, you know, in missing persons stories, we often focus on the, the procedure, the, the search or the, the person that's gone missing. And I wanted to look at, at the impact on the, the people left behind, essentially. Um, and then I was driving to an event and I'm a bit of a what if person. I'm always asking myself what ifs. And in front of me, there was a, um, a Camry. It has the old style boot. And um, all of a sudden, I was like, what if someone's in that boot? What if they're trying to get out? How, how would they have got in there? How would they get it? How would they let anyone know they were there? And then I was thinking, well, what if I was in that boot? And that kind of led me to my opening scene. But then I always kind of want to have a depth and colour in the novel. So I also start with, a, I guess, a moral question. So my first novel, um, The Good Mother, the, the, the question was how far would a mother go to protect her child? And in this one, it was, you know, is, is uncovering the truth always worth the price you and your loved ones might pay? And touching on a previous point you made about the impact on people left behind, I guess this kind of leads us to talk about the main character, Geneva, who is really put in this interesting position when her sister is kidnapped because she, she has to cope with this sudden loss. How do you think when the main event happens to Geneva, she dealt with this sudden grief or loss. Were there any coping mechanisms she may have used? And do you think these have changed as new information about her sisters comes to light later in the novel? Yeah, look, I, I think that what happened when her sister went missing was she was absolutely filled with guilt and shame because her sister Amber had asked Geneva to go for her. And Geneva had said no because she was too busy. So she has this belief that she's intrinsically selfish and that, that that's the reason her sister went missing. If her sister hadn't been there, she wouldn't have been taken. She doesn't. Geneva doesn't believe she would have been taken because she's taller and bigger and not as petite as her sister. Um, so she focused every bit of energy on to looking after her very young niece and nephew and swallowed a lot of who she was. She gave up her... Um, journalism cadetship, she just became a an at-home mum in a suburb where, in Balmoral where she doesn't fit in at all. And then when the news comes to light about her, you know, various without spoilers, more information, I think that reinvigorates who she is and, and empowers her to start investigating um, as an everyday person, because she doesn't, you know, she's not a police officer and doesn't have those contacts, but gives her the opportunity to become 
grow into herself again. I don't know if that's an awful way to put it, but um, yeah, she, she becomes who she really is at heart. I think that Geneva's this really epitomises a strong female lead in novels, especially in, in the crime genre. And with that, leading from what you were talking about, do you think she has certain expectations or harsher expectations on how she deals with her sister, how she treats her newfound situation? Yeah, I mean, she takes on the care of these children at a point in her life where she's incredibly ambitious in her career. Um, and she doesn't, isn't even sure she wants family. Um, she's grown up, you know, with parents that, that uh, it wasn't, they didn't have a great relationship. And I think that she's, yeah, she, she's, she's trying to figure all that out, but she doesn't, the biggest thing is she feels is shame about how she treated her sister. Her sister essentially mothered her and then she let her down. That's her viewpoint. I think she's very tough on herself throughout the novel and, I think I see a lot of women around me being very tough on themselves and I think it's in the media as well. I think, you know, that it it was interesting to explore that in the character. It's very important to bring that to light. Definitely when you're reading about that experience, not only may a lot of women relate to it, but it can be quite confronting as well. Yes. This next question is from Felix Shannon, who is a host of Death on the Reader on 2SCR. Yes. And he says that one of Australia's most acclaimed crime novels about siblings at the wrong end of the law is The Rules of Backyard Cricket by Jock Sarong, wherein the protagonist spends most of the book recounting his life with his brother from the boot of a car. More recently, we've also had novels like Jack Heath's Kill Your Brother. So that kind of leads him to question, what is it about siblings that has us picturing them trapped in claustrophobic spaces? <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe sometimes we just want to be able to put them there. Um, I don't know. The sibling relationship is such an interesting one because nobody else comes from that perspective in the world. Even even being different, uh, you know, first child or second child does change your view on the world and, and your experience in a home is very different. But you still have points of reference that are the same, time periods that are the same. So I think that idea of that sibling relationship, it's just so many complexities within that um, and, you know, whether the other person's a carer, whether you fight all the time, whether you're not close. Um, and there's so much you can explore as a writer with that. So I, I think that that's why writers go there. because, And it's also a different kind of love than, say, romantic love or love for a child or love for parents. Well, Ray, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a great chat. I really loved it. Ray Cairns there talking with our own Irene Diakonastasis about Dying to Know, Ray's latest thriller, which is out with HarperCollins. And thank you to them for providing copies to 2SER. We're going to jump back in to Robert Thorogood's Death Comes to Marlow. Stick around. You're on your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Hurts, here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are at the end, the closing scenes, the closing chapters, the explanations Mm. of Robert Thorogood's Death Comes to Marlow. Spoilers are in. Hurts, we were talking about the the end of the start of the show, just to make a confusing sentence as possible. I appreciate that. Uh, (laughs) That the, the denouement must be done. Yeah, I You're protesting. Well, this is this is the thing, right? I famously complain when a 
a victim, uh, sorry, a murderer, not the victim, the victim can't talk. When the murderer isn't given a chance to like fight back or explain themselves or get one last shot in before they get tackled to the ground by the police, that sort of thing. I feel like spending that much time with Judith just explaining what happened in the book when it's already like relatively obvious is it feels like a bit of a time waste to me. I I really enjoyed catching the criminal. Yes. I mean, I'm looking at the text now at this pretty much exactly when Tanika walks out with the, the, the audio recording. That's like the end of the scene. It's like, we've caught you. And then we don't see Jenny again. Jenny doesn't have a chance to like deal with the situation. It's like, ah, her world crumbled around her. I feel like it was lacking some sort of spice in the way that Jenny was interacting with that scene, something to kind of keep me invested. Because as much as I enjoy Judith explaining at great lengths how the bronze gavel was the linchpin of the entire mystery. (laughs) Just hold your horses there. We'll get get to that. I can't help it. I don't know. This this is something I'm still kind of passing my brain, but like- No, I- I completely agree. I mean, one of the things that we've enjoyed most over the past couple of years on the show is books that are able to get something really interesting out of their denouement. Yeah. In a book that much like the Thursday Murder Club is sort of about not underestimating anyone in society, I I feel like sitting in a room as your denouement is underselling what these people can do. It, it sort of undermines that message a bit. Not explicitly but very subtly there there are so many options for things you can do and so many holes that you can poke in the basic structure of a murder mystery to make a breakdown exciting there needs to be chaos of some level some controlled chaos because if the if the detective just tells them what's going on it it doesn't need to be a chase scene yeah but that's not the only option to kind of create a bit of as you say herds controlled chaos in this book she just gives up they're like ah well Triss uh, is going to confess and that's what's going to happen. And she's like, oh, I guess I'll give up now. I guess at this point, Herds, before we get into the, the gavel. The gavel. What's what's happening in the point situation? Oh, yeah. Because I have, so, I have, I have okay. a points thing that we need to address as well. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm gonna start out by saying I think you did really well last week. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was hovering around two points because you, you pulled the old switcheroo on your solution when you realized that you had missed something because the detail that I was yes. looking for was that he'd mm-hmm. been killed beforehand. That is the big trick. Yes. And it's why in, in the first episode I mentioned, ah, oh, well, Triss could have killed him later. That's what that like bad joke theory is foreshadowing. Yes. Which is pretty clever actually. And you managed to figure that out basically as we were chatting about it, which I really loved. And I was like, well- Yeah, those are my favorite salts. Yeah. And I was like, man, I really can't see myself not giving you three points. And then you said- I rained on my own parade, (laughs) did did I? He said, oh, and then I guess Triss was the one who cracked the safe and got the the will out. And I went, I thought it was really obvious that it was Jenny. That was my first thought when she gave Judith or whatever the the code. (laughs) She told her the code in like a hesitant sort of way. Because what's really going on is that she realizes that Triss is going to give up the game which is what happens in the end anyway, but whatever. She leads them to the will because she thinks, oh, well, if Triss tries to give me up and I can say that I'm the one who showed them the will, then that'll look good for me. Two points by the two sounds points. of things. It's two, it's two points, yes, at the end. I, I also have a, a small thing. You'll remember I mm. gave you one point for uh, eight detectives. Oh, did, did Oh, yeah? 
I'm pretty sure I clawed two points back out of that. Uh, well, I was contacted by a listener after that episode went to air. Uh-huh. They made the observation that by the rule that I laid out, that you had to predict something that had not yet been revealed as an inconsistency in the story, you did, in fact... Win yourself an extra point. Oh, are you telling me I'm about to get three points? I, I'll have to, I, I must confess, I didn't bring my logbook of points with me today, but you will at the very least be getting an extra point. I might get three points for that book, which I feel bad about, but also I will take. Listen, the audience has come through for you here. <laughs> Look, shout out to the audience. You're listening out there. You're what makes this show worth clawing points away from the the audience member in question did ask not to be named lest the the flex fanatics come <laughs> for them but okay i can be i can be fair okay. i can be a fair can member you? of this of this organization of this, of this court this <laughs> this murder mystery court look if you're all right let's begrudgingly arm twistingly gonna hammer that point i'll take it let's let's get to the last thing before we wrap up today heard the gavel uh, oh yes my please tell me about the gavel i want you to just enjoy how important it is. I've read this entire paragraph, uh, three paragraphs, four par- f- five paragraphs about the gavel so many times over that I stopped bothering to count. Uh-huh. I still do not understand what the purpose okay. of the gavel is. So here's is. the thing. The, you the mentioned reason- earlier in Look. the first in the first part <laughs> that narratively it symbolizes a link between two characters. Yes, it does. Mechanically speaking, they needed like the weight of it to lower it down the fireplace, right? I don't know. Is that even mentioned? I don't even remember. That was my best guess. It's not what it is, But it though. doesn't make sense. No, it's not what it's That's not what it's for. It's just so that when they have the two pieces of magnesium tape, they can tie it together with something. That's all it is. The idea is it's just a division of labor. But just, just tie the tape to the tape. No, nah, it's too difficult, apparently. They have to hook it to the gavel. All he had to do was wrap the end of the tape in the study to the end of the tape attached to the gavel. So it's just wrap the tape around the tape. That's what the book says verbatim. I don't know. It says that they have to wrap it around the gavel, which is just how it is, I guess. The gavel is important. It's a symbol of authority. It's symbolism. You just don't get it. Clearly- I just, Yeah, look, I don't get it. Clearly I, you've I, I never really... tried to tie two ends of magnesium tape to each other. I would imagine- That is- Interestingly untrue. I've <laughs> well, just then. never used it to murder someone. Okay. How long does it take you to tie two pieces of magnesium tape together? It'd probably take me more time to start and read the stopwatch than it would do <laughs> to take the task. But would it take longer to tie the two ends of the magnesium tape than it would to tie two ends of magnesium tape to a gavel? You know, I, I don't have the evidence on that one. <laughs> I must confess, the jury's out on that decision. Yeah, no, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm basically playing devil's advocate here because I also think this is a bit silly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like... I get it symbolically. I understand why there is a thing in between the two pieces of tape. Yeah. I don't know why it had to be a gavel. I don't know why the gavel remains in the fireplace for so long. Judith says, like, I would, wouldn't have suspected you or I wouldn't have been able to prove it was you if not for the gavel. The, the big thing is, is my solution, my solution initially last week before I corrected myself, which was great fun. Don't it get was me wrong. Great I fun. did enjoy myself. The, the things that I said weren't really mechanically proven to be impossible but it the the story kind of with the gavel as a prime example doesn't close enough doors on what is and isn't possible to like make it really challenging the locked room is not that complicated it is just that it was locked 
and then they put the keys inside the man when they open the door. And that's yep. that's fine. That's like a fine locked room. But everything from there is extra detail. Yeah, nothing else really matters. Also, it's like it's not even a locked room because it's got the fireplace. Like they don't really establish that the fireplace was closed. You could even say that someone snuck down the fireplace. Are you suggesting that Santa Claus did this murder herds? I look, I'd put it on Santa Claus if I had to pick somebody. If you really wanted to just go for it, like, yeah, Tris is like a thin guy he could sneak up and down that fireplace. Like, yeah, that man is about as thick as a piece of magnesium I, tape. That sounds right as to me. evidenced by his confession. <laughs> that sounds about right. That was very clever, Flex. Thank you. Um, also, Robert, I am speaking to you directly now. Put an actual crossword in these books. I, I'll be honest. I haven't, I haven't read the first one, but based on this book. There is no actual crossword in this book. Put a crossword in the book. I would love to solve a crossword. Nonetheless, Herds, I think it's time to wrap up Death Comes Tomorrow. Okay, good. As I walk away wounded. <laughs> With a gavel in your in your eye. Yes. Uh, and I want to go to a bit of, bit of a weird choice. Uh-oh. What does that mean? We are going to a book that is not explicitly a mystery novel, but is mm. explicitly an inspiration for several of the texts that we've covered this year. Ooh. I found it via Alex Pavese's blog on his website. Well, I, I'd heard of it before, but I, I, I found this connection. Look, I'm sure that you heard about it through many voices and mouths. I am an expert on crime fiction, Herds. Have you I'm not sure heard you me on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation? Look, I- Don't you know I'm credible? I was also on there. I got them to say that I was on an award-winning podcast, which is a stretch at best, but I it was great. It's a good time. Anyway, <laughs> we are going over to Death and the Seaside by Alison Moore. This book is broken up into three parts, so would you believe our three episodes will be parts one, part two, Whoa, and part three. That's crazy. Whoa, don't spoil that for the kind people out there. And for me. This is an interesting book about a uh, relationship between a few women and the blurring lines between fiction mm. and reality so you can kind of see where our little metafiction-y stretch is going calling it now they're all dead seaside killed them the end no comment <laughs> seaside killed them we will see you for death of the seaside next week on the show this is your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3 I'm Flex he's Herds we'll catch you then